Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians, chapter 1. And I'll read verses 18 through 23. And Paul writes... Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We've been looking today at the four states of Christ. This morning we considered the first two, which are first, the pre-incarnate glory of Christ, and second, the humiliation of Christ. And we found both of them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, where Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, rich in all the glory of his pre-incarnate state in deity in heaven. For your sakes he became poor, the poverty of his life and his death upon the cross, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This evening we come to the second, the last two states of Christ, which are first the mediatorial glory of Christ, and last the glory of Christ in his eternal kingdom. So the third state of Christ that we look at here now tonight is the mediatorial glory of Jesus Christ. And here we speak of the glory that belongs to him after his resurrection from the dead and his return back into heaven to his heavenly father where he is seated at the right hand of God. And there he is the mediator There is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And Jesus Christ tonight is in his mediatorial glory. We see this here in Ephesians chapter 1, that beginning in verse 20 and down through verse 23. Verse 20 is really connected to verse 19, in which Paul speaks of the power that is at work in us who believe, and he prays that the Ephesians would see this surpassing great power that is at work in them. There is a divine power that is at work in every believer that enables us to walk day by day in newness of life, that gives us grace and perseverance and faith that we may continue in the ways of Christ. And this power that is at work in us is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And 
Paul speaks here and tells us that it is a very great power. He describes it with one word after another in verse 19, the surpassing, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Some Bibles translate it the exceeding greatness or the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe. And then he continues in this same type of description at the end of verse 19, these are in accordance with the working, the working of the strength of his might. Or some would translate it according to the working of his mighty power or the working of his great might. And Paul will return to this same theme of the power of God in believers beginning in chapter 2 and verse 1 and following. But in now in verses 20 through 23, he interrupts this theme with a paragraph concerning the power of God in the resurrection of Christ from the dead and his exaltation to his throne in heaven. In verse 20, he says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. If the cross of Christ was the ultimate demonstration of the love of God, then the resurrection of Christ was the ultimate demonstration of the power of God. We read of his resurrection in and his ascension in the Gospels, that after his death, Jesus was laid in the tomb. And he laid in the tomb three days, but it was impossible for him to be held under death's power. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And he appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. And then in Acts chapter 1, As the disciples were looking on, he was lifted up from the earth and received by a cloud. And then he was taken up into the heavens. And two angels in white clothing spoke to the disciples and they said, This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. And Jesus ascended up passed through the heavens into the place of God's majestic presence, and the gates of glory were opened, and Christ entered victorious over sin and death and Satan. And God the Father, in fulfillment of Psalm 110, said to his beloved Son, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. And with all power in heaven and earth given unto Jesus, the Father said to him, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Verse 20 speaks of the physical resurrection of the real human body of Jesus from the dead. And then the ascension of that body, Christ in his true humanity, God and man passing through the heavens, exalted to sit at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, in the highest glory of heaven. Christ returned to his glory in heaven, glory that he had from eternity. But there are real distinctions between the pre-incarnate glory of Christ and this mediatorial glory of Christ that we read of here. 
And we see the first, the first very great distinction here, which is something that had never taken place before, something that had never been seen or could even have been conceived of before, that a man sits upon the throne of God in heaven. A sinless man, a perfect and holy humanity, a glorified humanity, immortal, imperishable, and full of glory and honor, but still with visible wounds upon him from the cross so that all may see him and know that he is the Lamb of God in the center of the throne. Here is something the angels who long to look into all of God's work in salvation, here is something the angels could have never imagined that a man would sit upon the throne of God in the highest place of glory. And his exaltation in his humanity was not an exaltation as a private person, but it was an exaltation with all of his people in union with him. So that his resurrection And his ascension into heaven becomes our resurrection from the dead and our ascension into heaven as well. And this is what Paul is saying down in chapter 2 and verse 6, where he says that God raised us up with him, raised us up in a spiritual resurrection with him, in union with him, and seated us with him, in union with him, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So how great is the love of God for a lost humanity, that he would exalt humanity to his own right hand in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. So that the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity is forever united and identified with humanity on the throne of God in heaven. Sinless, holy, and glorified humanity. And we shall be conformed to his image perfectly in our souls in the end. And our bodies shall be like his, as the apostle tells us in Philippians 3 and verse 21. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. And he will grant to us to sit down with him on his throne. As he says in Revelation 3 verse 21, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. So here we see why he he who was so rich was willing to become so poor, even to the death of the cross, that he might make us who were so poor rich with all the riches as he shares that throne of glory with us. The glory of the God-man is Christ now at the right hand of God 
as the mediator between God and man. One man put it this way, that in the exaltation of Christ, God has raised the dust of the earth to the throne of God in heaven. Verse 21 now speaks of various levels of angelic powers in the world above. It refers to all rule, authority, and power, and dominion, all various levels of spiritual and angelic powers, whatever they are. Paul tells us here that Christ is supremely exalted and he is far above all of them. And not only this, but he continues now that Christ has been raised far above in the middle of verse 21, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So the apostle here, he extends the supremacy of Christ over every other being that could ever be named in this age and in the age which is to come. So that there can never be any being, any power, any principality, any created thing over which Christ shall not be lifted far above them in glory and power and dominion. A little side note that I'll note here for a moment is that time, if we can call it that, is divided into two parts at the end of verse 21, this age and the age which is to come, the one which is to come. This age is the present age in which we live. The age which is to come is the eternal age. And what separates them, as we'll see later tonight, is the second coming of Christ. And there is no thousand-year reign of Christ on earth between them. There is this age, and then there is the age which is to come. No thousand-year reign of Christ. And some, many even, have believed that There is a thousand-year reign of Christ, and that comes from Revelation chapter 20, which is the only passage in the Bible that speaks of the thousand-year reign of Christ, and it speaks of it in a book that is filled with figurative language. And we may understand that thousand-year reign of Christ as a reign of Christ that is presently taking place, thousand-year referring to an extended long period of time. And Jesus spoke in this very same way of this age and the age which is to come. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 32, he said, Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age which is to come. Verse 22 now speaks of the authority given to Christ. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet and given him as head over all things to the church. All things is universal. All things includes all men, great and small, kings and rulers, all creatures, all powers in heaven and upon earth, wherever they may be, what Ever kind of power they may be, nothing is excluded here. 
There is no event, no circumstance of our lives, no trouble that may ever come upon us. There is not a single atom in the universe which is outside the rule of Christ. This is the absolute sovereignty and the supremacy of the God-man Jesus over all things. The highest conceivable exaltation, power, and authority over everything has been given to him. His mediatorial glory and power. God the Father himself could not find a higher glory to give to him. The words in the beginning of verse 22. He put all things in subjection under his feet. They really come from Psalm 8 and verse 6. Thou hast put all things under his feet. And in the psalm it refers to mankind in general, but here we learn its fulfillment comes only in Jesus Christ and his exaltation. The same psalm is quoted in the book of Hebrews in chapter 2 as fulfilled in Christ. The apostle says in Hebrews chapter 2, thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, and thou hast appointed him over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, and in subjecting all things to him, there is, there is nothing that is not subject to him. So there is this universal rule of Christ. Verse 20 tells us where God the Father seated him, raised him up, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21 tells us how high his throne is, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Verse 22 tells us what authority has been given to him. All things have been put in subjection under his feet. And here we see a second distinction between his present glory as mediator and his pre-incarnate glory, which is that his present glory as mediator is the reward of his sufferings. There is a glory that has been given to Christ as the reward of the sufferings of his perfect life and death upon the cross. And we can see this in the book of Philippians, which we looked at this morning, Philippians chapter 2. We'll turn over to Philippians chapter 2. And this morning we looked at the passage beginning in verse 6 down through verse 8, in which Paul speaks of the humiliation of our Lord Jesus, that his, he was willing to lay aside the majesty, the glory of heaven that rightfully belonged to him and humble himself and take his humanity for our salvation. We read in verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even the death, even death on a cross. Therefore, also God highly exalted him. Verse 9 begins with the word, therefore, which points us back to the preceding verses, especially to his obedience unto the death of the cross in verse 9. Therefore, because of that obedience of Christ, for this reason, because of his humiliation unto death, now follows the reward of his exaltation. Exaltation follows humiliation. 
and exaltation is the reward of all of his obedient humiliation. Verse 9, therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The beginning of verse 10, at the name of Jesus. The name that was given to him at his birth, which means Savior. The name which refers to him in his earthly life, in his human nature as a man, the name that he did not have before his incarnation. But at this name of Jesus, the whole creation is to bow and worship him as Lord. Verse 11, that every knee, that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The highly exalted glory of Christ that is spoken of here in verses 9 and following, it is his present reward of his sufferings in heaven. He has been exalted to the highest place in heaven. But the bowing of every knee and the confessing of every tongue will wait for the last day when he returns. This is what God the Father did when he exalted his beloved Son in heaven. And he declared before all of heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased and he has finished all the work that I have given him. And this is the reward that must be given to him. That he be exalted into the highest place of glory in heaven. And that's where he is tonight as the great mediator. We turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. The rest of verse 22 tells us the purpose for which the universal power has been given to him. And God gave him as head over all things to the church. To be head over all things means to have absolute sovereignty and rule over all things. As he said in the earlier, in the first half of verse 22, but then he adds to the church, which means that Christ is not only head over all things, but he is also head of the church. And so the idea here is that God the Father has given Christ to the church in this capacity as head and sovereign ruler with all things subject to him for the good, for the blessing for the upholding and for the final salvation of his church. He gave him as head over all things to the church. We often think of God the Father giving Christ to us in his death for sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We often think of Christ 
given to us as the sacrifice for our sins. That is all true. But here we learn that the gift of Christ to us now continues in his exaltation in glory as head over all things to the church. He is given. He as God the Father gave him as head over all things to the church. So that the gift of Jesus is not past and gone, but the gift of Christ is present and continuing to the end of the age. To be the head of the church means that the church is his body, which he says in the beginning of verse 23, to the church which is his body. Christ the head, the church the body. There is always union, intimacy between the head and the body. There is love. The head looks over, cares for, protects the church. The head nourishes, Christ nourishes and cherishes his body. As Paul will say later in chapter 5, no one ever hates his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Christ the head of the church means that Christ has authority over his church to rule his church. Her life, her doctrine, her worship according to his word. Christ the head of the church means that all spiritual life comes from him to the church. And the church is always dependent upon him and in union with him. Christ loves the church. And though he sends great trials upon his church to sanctify her and purify her. He cannot let his church perish, and he must come to her in every dire distress, and he has done so for thousands of years. He has rescued, he has strengthened, and he has nourished his church for her safety, for her protection, and for her final salvation. In verse 23, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. The church is called the fullness of Christ because Christ fills the church by the Spirit. Just as a body is filled with a soul, so Christ fills his church by the Spirit. He is the mediator, the great high priest. He is the prophet, the priest, the king over his church. As prophet, he speaks the word to his church, and he sends light and illumination to the church. As the priest, he continues to intercede in heaven for the church on earth. We have a great high priest, the apostle says, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He was a priest on earth when he offered himself in the death of the cross, but he is still a priest in heaven 
the great high priest to intercede at the right hand of God the Father. When we think of the intercession of Christ, we do not need to think of a verbal intercession between the Son and the Father because the very presence of Christ in heaven representing his great sacrifice, his presence itself is his intercession and everything needful will be given to his church. To be the mediator requires two natures, God and man. And that's who Jesus is. He is now the exalted mediator. God between God and man, the man who has been God from eternity, the man, Christ Jesus. So we call it the mediatorial glory because it is the glory that he presently possesses at the right hand of God. So Christ has all power over all things for the church, which means that Christ will build his church according to his will. He has power to save sinners. He has power to send his spirit and his word. He has power to gather in all of his elect. He said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself, men from every tribe and tongue and people. And here is one of the great distinctions with the exalted glory of Jesus now in heaven, that the gospel is not any longer of the Jews only, but the gospel and salvation has gone to the ends of the earth so that men from every tribe and tongue and nation can be gathered in to his kingdom. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14 is fulfilled. To him is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language may serve him. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 and verse 2 of himself. And he said, even as thou hast given him authority over all mankind, over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given to him, he may give eternal life. And all that the Father has given to Christ will come to him. And he will lose nothing. And he will raise them all up on the last day. So we have seen here the mediatorial glory of Christ that he has now returned to in heaven. Distinguished from that pre-incarnate glory that we saw this morning. Distinguished in these three ways. That he is now exalted as the God-man to the throne of heaven. That his exaltation is the reward of his obedient sufferings. And that he is exalted as the mediator and the head of his church. And so we've seen now the first three states of Christ Christ in his pre-incarnate glory, Christ in his humiliation, Christ in his mediatorial glory. And now we come to the last state of Christ, which is Christ in the glory of his eternal kingdom. Just as with us, there is what There is what we call with us 
in our salvation, there is the already and the not yet. And what we mean by that is that the powers of the age to come, the things of the eternal age, have already begun to be at work in our lives as believers. But the fulfillment, the fullness of them, has not yet come, but they will come. It will come at the second coming of Christ. So there is this already that has begun, and there is this not yet that is to come. And it is the same in regard to Christ and his glory. There is an already and a not yet. His final eternal glory will come when all of his elect have been saved and he gathers them into his eternal kingdom. And it will be the end of all things and the beginning of the eternal age. Christ will return from heaven. It will be the last day, the resurrection. He will send forth his angels to the four corners of the earth. He will gather in all of his elect people. He will present to himself the church in all of her glory. And he will have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it will be the beginning of all eternity. Here in Ephesians 1, verses 20 through 23, the apostle speaks of the present mediatorial glory of Christ over his church. But he mentions this eternal glory in chapter 5 and verse 27. And we'll turn there for just a moment. Chapter 5 and verse 27. And... Paul says here in verse 27 that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. This is what Christ will do on the last day. All of his mediatorial work will be finished. The church will stand in all of her glory, clothed in white robes, perfectly sanctified, prepared for the eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. And then there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb, and Christ will be in the glory of his eternal kingdom. We might look at verse 25, where it says, Christ loved the church and gave him up, himself up for her. There is his humiliation, his state of humiliation. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. There is his mediatorial kingdom and his mediatorial work in her in this age. But then verse 27, we come to the eternal kingdom of Christ in all his glory. We'll turn to an important passage in this regard in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 20 through 23, Paul speaks about the resurrection. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. In verse 23, he speaks of the order of the resurrection. Christ was the first to be raised, like the first fruits, and then comes the full harvest, which is the resurrection of all who are Christ. And it says at the end of verse 23, at his coming, at his second coming. So verse 23 tells us of the resurrection of all men at the second coming of Christ. And then we read in the beginning of verse 24, then comes the end. Then comes the end of all things. The end of this present age and the beginning of the eternal age. The second coming of Christ at the end of verse 23 will come and there will be the resurrection. And then immediately in verse 24 is the end of all things and the beginning of the age to come. So what we have here is once again this age and the age which is to come. And they are separated only by the second coming of Christ. Verse 24. Then comes the end. And we'll work down through verse 28. He says, then comes the end. When he, that is Christ, delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father. The kingdom of God on earth is now complete. All God's people have been saved. They have all been gathered into it. The church militant now comes to the church triumphant. The spiritual warfare of the present age is over. The church is in all of her glory. And Christ will deliver up the kingdom and present it to the God and Father. It is the end of all things in this present age. And all the work of salvation in this world is over. And Christ delivers the kingdom to the God and Father. Then in verse 24, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Speaking of spiritual powers of wickedness who have always opposed Christ in this present reign. The devil and his angels, they will be abolished. They will be sent into the lake of fire forever. All powers against him will be abolished. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is the present reign of Christ in heaven. He must continue to reign. His reign in heaven now is a conquering of his enemies. And he must continue to reign until the end comes when he returns from heaven and all his enemies are under his feet. Verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. The great enemy of men from the beginning of the world has been death. But death itself will be abolished and conquered forever when he returns and it will be conquered in the resurrection that he will bring. And Paul says later when that resurrection comes, this perishable will put on the imperishable 
and this mortal will put on the immortality, and then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Death is abolished in the resurrection at the second coming of Christ. No more death. Now Jesus said this in Luke chapter 20. The Sadducees came to him with that story of the seven brothers who married the same wife. They all died having no children. The question of the Sadducees was, in the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them this. Listen to Jesus' words. He says, the sons of this age, the sons of this age, marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, to the age that is to come, the eternal age, and the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So there is this age and the age to come, and the resurrection is what separates them once again. And Jesus said this, For neither can they die anymore, for they will be like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. They cannot die anymore. Because death in all of its power has been abolished by Christ. All things are subject to him. Even death is subject to him. And the power of death will be abolished by Christ when he returns. This is what he says in verse 27. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. The same words that we saw earlier. Ephesians 1 and verse 22. God the Father has put all things under the feet of Christ, including the power of death, and he will abolish it when he comes by the resurrection. The second half of verse 22, he says, but when he, but when he says, that is, when God the Father says, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, God the Father is accepted who put all things in subjection to him, that is, Christ. So the Father did not include himself in the subjection of all things to Christ. He himself, God the Father, was accepted, not part of that subjection. And this now prepares us for verse 28. And when all things are subjected to him, that is, to God the Father. Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, to the one who subjected all things to him, to the Father who subjected all things to him, that is, to Christ, that God may be all in all. So here we have the end of all things. Christ returns from heaven. There is the resurrection. The kingdom is presented to God the Father. When he says here in verse 28 that the Son himself also will be subjected to the Father, what he means is that the Son will surrender his mediatorial kingship to God the Father when he presents the kingdom to the Father. Because there will be no need any longer 
His work as mediator will be finished. The kingdom will be complete. And Christ himself as mediator, his work is done. And so it does not refer to any subjection of Christ as the eternal son to the father, but it speaks only of his work as mediator over his kingdom, which a, a work that he received from the father and is now accomplished. And the end of verse 28, that God in all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may be all in all in the glory of the kingdom that has been presented to them. So here we see the beginning of the glory of Christ, the eternal glory of his kingdom when he returns from heaven on the last day. We'll turn to the book of Revelation quickly. Revelation chapter 19. And verse 1. After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice out, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power to our God. And then down in verse 5, and a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bond servants, who, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad. And give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. So here we have the end of all things as we have seen. Christ shall present to himself the church in all of her glory. And as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, at his second coming there will be the resurrection. And he will deliver up the kingdom to God the Father. He will surrender his mediatorial kingship. And it will be the beginning of the glory of the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there will be love and there will be joy, rejoicing, hallelujahs, and praise to him. Christ, the bridegroom, has returned and his bride, the church, is presented to him. And the blessedness of the eternal age in the new heavens and the new earth now begins forever and ever. Verse 6, give praise to him. Verse 5, the end of verse 6, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come. 
The hymn writer writes, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he gifteth, but on his pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. This marriage supper of the Lamb is what Christ has always longed for. And he has always desired this day to come when all of his people will be gathered to him. And we want to close with this one passage in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke and chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And verse 15. This is the Last Supper. And Christ is with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffered. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Until all things come to their final fulfillment in that eternal kingdom of God. Jesus is here with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. And he knew that he would not banquet with them again until the salvation of his church was complete and all his saints were gathered to him as we saw in Revelation chapter 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what he is speaking of here. On the last night, he is looking forward to that great day. And then Luke tells us in verse 17, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes, until the eternal kingdom comes in all of its final glory at that marriage supper of the Lamb. So this is the purpose of Christ in his mediatorial reign in heaven tonight to bring all of his loved ones that the Father has given to him safely to that great supper of the Lamb. He will not be satisfied until all of his people are gathered from east and west, from north and south to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He has very great glory now in heaven as we've seen. But his glory will not be complete. And his heart will not be satisfied. Until all of his people are gathered to his kingdom on that day. This is what he longs for. It was the joy that was set before him by which he endured the cross. And it will come. When he returns from heaven at the last day. So we have seen all four states of Christ today. Christ in his pre-incarnate glory. Christ in his humiliation on earth. In his 
life and death upon the cross, Christ in his mediatorial glory in heaven, and Christ in his glory in the eternal kingdom. We close with one thought, that our greatest need in this present world, in all the confusion, the trouble, the trials that we face in this present world, our greatest need is to keep our eyes fixed upon our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is. And the four states give us many thoughts of Christ and who he is. He is God from everlasting. Only God could come and save us. And Christ is the God who has come, the second person of the Trinity, for our salvation. Christ in his humiliation, that he who was so rich became poor, so poor in the poverty of death upon the cross to make us rich through his poverty. And Christ in his glory, victorious now, in heaven, at the right hand of God, his resurrection, his exaltation, the assurance of our exaltation with him to come. But then Christ, finally, in his eternal glory in the kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth. All of this gives us many thoughts of our Lord Jesus Christ because the Christian life is much more about what we think than what we do. Because our doing, our living, will only be changed as our thinking is transformed. Our thinking controls our doing, and we must have thoughts of Christ looking to him and that alone can transform us into what we need to be. He is our sanctification. He is our strength. He is our hope. And he is our comfort. And so we must keep our eyes fixed upon him. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your Holy Word, thank you for your beloved Son. Thank you for all the glory that has been given to him as the reward of his sufferings on our behalf. Lord, what can we say but what a glorious and wonderful Savior you have given to us. Lord Jesus, help us to walk in fellowship with you. Keep us from our sins. Keep us from the temptations of this present world from the idols that still remain in our hearts. Take them all away from us and give us clear eyes to see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And help us to live in the light of it and bless us with your grace and your presence and power and help us to be faithful to you in every way. Take away our sins, Lord Jesus, help us. And we thank you now tonight. And we pray that you would hear us in Jesus' name, amen.